Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John's Gospel, the very first chapter. Uh, last week we wrapped up several months in a section of John known as the Farewell Discourse, a place where Jesus gave final instructions to his closest friends and prayed to his Father before he went to the cross and through the grave to rescue his people from all their sins and sorrows. And now, now in this season with so many people around the world are more focused than usual on the birth of Jesus and maybe more interested than usual in what it's all about, we decided we'd go right back to John's gospel, to the very beginning of that gospel, to his very first chapter, to slowly walk through an incredible section where he introduces Jesus to us. This morning we're going to have the first of four sermons in John chapter 1 that will carry us through to the end of this year. I can't wait to get into it with each of you. John chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, let me also tell you that we have provided copies of the Bible for you to use today. It'll be super helpful to you and to me if it's open in front of you. I'm going to be referring back to what's there over and over again. I'd love for you to see what I'm talking about. But I'm also mentioning it now because what would make us even happier than that is if you'd take it with you as our gift to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would, we would just love for you to have the one that we've provided there. And we would love to follow up with you later on what you're going to hear from God's word today. I wonder, what do you think is wrong with our world? And what would it take to fix it? Not a trick question. I really want you to think about it. What do you think is wrong with our world? And what would it take to fix it? A couple of years ago, not long before, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos stepped away from the company to do philanthropy full-time. Somebody wrote an op-ed column titled, and I quote, Global catastrophes Jeff Bezos could fix and still be the richest person in the world, end quote. <laughs> For example, at the time he had like 200 billion. I don't know what he's got now. But at the time, for example, this article mused, he could pay the estimated cost to feed the 820 million people suffering from chronic hunger and still have as much as 190 billion left over to live on. Or, based on numbers this author pulled from the World Bank at the time of the writing of that article, something like 800 million people lived in what they called extreme poverty and would need roughly a $1.50 more per day to get out of it. Jeff Bezos might not be the permanent solution to that problem, but they said, you know what, he could, he could kickstart it. He could cover that deficit for a day for the world and still have $199 billion left over at the end of the day. The article does similar statistical feats for pay inequality across gender and racial gaps, uh, for wa the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, uh, for children's health globally, for, for homelessness in the Bay Area. You get the idea. This man and his money could get a lot done. What do you think is wrong with the world? What would it take to fix it? Christianity is, ultimately when you boil it down, Christianity is, is a specific answer to those questions. And Christianity's answer is this. This world is wonderful. It's full of beauty and goodness and so much for us to enjoy. But this world is, is broken too. 
broken beyond anything that we can do to repair it. This is a world in which babies are born with devastating abnormalities, in which nearly half of us in this room will one day deal with cancer, in which the people that you're close that are closest to you have the most power to wound you and use that power all too often, in which you ultimately do the same back to them. This is a world in which addictions destroy lives and families. It's a world in which powerful men make war and innocent children pay the price. It is a beautiful world, but but a fundamentally broken world, broken beyond our ability to fix it. And you can see that brokenness from the 30,000 foot level. And you can see that brokenness with a microscope as closely as you could possibly pay attention. And you'll find it whatever direction you happen to be looking in. It is a world so broken that only the one who made it in the first place has the power to make it new. That's Christianity's answer. And the hope of Christianity, the hope of, of Christmas is that this is exactly what that God, that maker, intends to do. That's where John begins his story. That's John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I want to ask you to stand with me now as I read these verses. And we'll spend the remainder of our time together walking through them slowly. This is the word of the Lord to us from John chapter 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. From these few verses to open John's gospel, John is pointing us to three things you need to know about Jesus. I want to show you what those three things are and then show you three huge implications for us. Three things you need to know about Jesus, first of all. That'll be most of our time. And then three huge implications for us. Here's thing number one that you need to know about Jesus from John's gospel. Jesus is God. You need to know that Jesus is God. Did you notice John starts his gospel with no birth stories? You know, all the Christmas stories that we read a lot this time of year, the kinds of things we'll read together at the carol service in a couple of weeks. We don't get those from John. (laughs) We get those from Matthew and from Luke. John's John's take is, all right, you want to know about Jesus? We're going to have to start way back. Like not just in the beginning, like beyond the beginning. For you to know what you need to know about him, You need to go back before the world even existed. I'm going to have to tell you about everything for me to tell you who who he is. John begins his book in the deepest of deep ends, right in the heart of all reality, right into the wonderful mystery that is God's own life. Jesus belongs right in the middle of that mystery. Now, I want to tell you, I want to shoot straight with you. When, when John starts in John chapter, or when John in John 1, verse 1, uh, says that in the beginning was the Word, 
he's meaning for, for our minds to go back to the very beginning of the world itself. He's, he's meaning for us to go back to Genesis chapter 1, to the very first verse in all of the Bible. That's where his readers would have gone first, and they would have taken the point. He's echoing Genesis 1.1. When before there was a heavens and earth created, there was already a God. When his readers think about Jesus, he wants them thinking about Genesis 1. And when his readers think about Genesis 1, about the God who was already there in the beginning, he wants them thinking about Jesus. He's, he's making this simple and straightforward point that Jesus is God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, I, I just want to pause right here and explain that we have a lot of core beliefs as Christians that we never would have come up with on our own. And this is one of them. Uh, maybe this is the best example of all. We, we believe that God exists as a being that is entirely unique, entirely different from all other kinds of beings that are in the world, including you and me. He's just his own type of being. We believe that there is, there is one being, one God, not a bunch of gods like you might find in other religions, but that this one God exists in three persons. Not three personalities that he puts on in succession like changing outfits from one to the other, but three distinct persons that are, that are always living and always active and always relating to one another in this one God and his own inner life. I know that's super abstract. I, I'll just be honest, I can barely begin to understand even the words that are coming out of my mouth right now. And these are, these are not ideas that any one of us would have created on our own. But in another way, it fits what we would expect about God. That he is a being vastly beyond us. Anyone who could be responsible for our existence has got to be bigger than what we can fit into our own brains. For us to know a being like that, he'd have to tell us about himself. It'd have to be up to him to tell us what we need to know and up to us to just affirm what he tells us and not think too much about it beyond what he said, whether we completely get it or not. And that's what we Christians believe that God has done in the Bible, that in this Bible, we have God telling us what he's like. And the Trinity, the idea that there's one God made up of three persons, one God who exists rather in three persons, that's an idea that just comes straight out of the Bible. It doesn't come out of any of our minds. It comes right here, including this passage that we're looking at this morning. Now, this is where I want to pivot over to those of us who are Christians here in the morning. I want to encourage you guys to be always ready to dive into the deep end, that, that, that it's good, it's worth the effort to go all in with passages like this one. Sometimes even those of us who grew up around Christianity and have been Christians a long time can feel intimidated by what the Bible has to say about the Trinity, about the being of God and how it all works. We, we, we can just kind of shrug our shoulders at the mystery of it. You know, it's kind of, well... No way I can understand that. So let me move on to other things that I can understand as if because we can't understand it, there's no goodness in it for us. We can maybe even feel a little bit of annoyance when a preacher promises a Christmas series and immediately starts talking about abstract ideas like the Trinity. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands out there. 
But, but the kind of being that God is, however much it might stretch our minds beyond what they can take in, it is crucial for everything that we're hoping in, including the hope of Christmas. The kind of being God is, is crucial for everything that we're hoping in. And just because we can't understand the depths of it all doesn't mean we can't receive what the Bible tells us in a way that makes our confidence in God stronger and our worship of God deeper and more meaningful. Yeah, it takes patience. And yeah, we have to work hard at it. But when you dig down into this soil, it's a gold mine. You never come up empty. So let's dig together, okay? Back to verses one and two. In the simplest of sentences, we have in these two verses some of our most core beliefs about who God is. John tells us the word was with God and the word was God. The word was with God and the word was God. We need to understand both. The first of these statements shows us how what, what, rather, what is distinct in God. And in the second of these statements, we see how God is one. What sets him apart within his life? What makes him one in his life? So the word was with God, John tells us. That's the language of relationship. The word by which he means Jesus, he's talking about the son of God, was in the beginning already with God, by which he means the father. It's a title he'll use later in this chapter. And these two persons, the Word and God, had a relationship with one another. That means they can't be the same. They're distinct in some important way that makes that relationship possible. I mean, even the way John uses Word as a title for the Son of God helps us understand how the persons are distinct in the Trinity. The main way the Bible talks about what's distinct in God's life between the persons of the Trinity is in where they come from. So, so the Bible talks about these persons as all eternal. There was never a time in which the Son or the Spirit did not exist with the Father. But the Son and the Spirit proceed eternally from the Father. The Son is called the Word. That's an expression of the Father. The Son is elsewhere called an image of the invisible God. Again, an expression of the Father. Or, or, or in Hebrews, he's, he's called the radiance of the Father's glory. It's an expression of the Father. There was never a time when, when the Son wasn't radiating the Father's glory. When the Son wasn't imaging the Father's invisible beauty. When the Son wasn't a word expressing the truth about the Father. There was never a time when he didn't do what he does. But this son, like the spirit, proceeds from the father. That's one of the things that makes them distinct. Now we need to balance that out. We need to balance that out with, with John's second statement. The word was God. It's like John knows. All right, I just told him that he was with God and I know what they're thinking. That means that way back before this world was created, God first created another really cool spiritual being to predate the world. I mean, even the even calling him the word sounds like we're talking about a different being altogether, one of whom comes after the other and is completely different from him. And John is, is now throwing on the brakes. He's coming to a screeching halt. No, the word that was with God was God. In every sense that the father is God, the son is God. The persons are distinct in their relationship to one another, but they are one in their essence. 
You got that? <laughs> Is that making sense? No? <laughs> uh, next weekend, my little brother's getting married in Napa, California. I'm going out there. And I'll be honest, I don't understand the physics involved in commercial air travel. I don't understand the engineering involved in jet engines. Even if I read a Wikipedia summary, I'm not going to understand the words on the page. Maybe I will, but then I, I certainly couldn't explain the concept to you in my own words. I couldn't reproduce them. But I do know this. If I get on one of those jet planes, I can make a trip in five or six hours that 150 years ago would have taken me months. And this time of year probably would have killed me. I don't have to understand it all to benefit from it. And you don't have to understand all the ins and outs of the life that is God. You don't have to fully grasp all that's even told to us about God's life to benefit from God being the way God is. And John starts here in the deep end of the pool because God being the way God is is crucial to all the benefit we hope to gain from being his people. John begins his story by stretching our minds to the brink because this truth about Jesus right here is crucial for how he helps us, for how he gives to us a help we can't live without. The first thing you need to know about Jesus is that Jesus is God. And here's the second thing you need to know about Jesus. Jesus made everything. Jesus is God, that's verses one and two. And Jesus made everything, that's verse three. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Try saying that five times fast. Here, John is, is continuing to echo Genesis chapter one. He wants his readers going back to the beginning of everything. To know Jesus, you got to know about all of it. And he's saying that when God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1, 1, the word created the heavens and the earth. All things were made through him. When have you ever been to a big, wonderful art museum? Like one of the big ones that's got a lot of variety in it from all over the world and all throughout history. One of my favorite things about art museums like that is the ability to go from one room into another and see things that are just completely different. <laughs> to, to, to walk from, from, from the, the Renaissance in Europe, for example, into Native American art in the next room over to walk from Impressionists in France into, uh, into Ansel Adams-style photographs up on the wall. You can walk from one room to another and see incredible variety, all of it representing the wide range of ways that humans create in this world. What John is trying to tell us is that this, this whole world is like one big, incredibly diverse gallery full of masterworks. A diversity you won't find in any art museum, no matter how many times and places are represented in gallery after gallery. But out there, no matter what room you walk in, no matter what you see hanging on the wall, what you're looking at is a masterpiece of the one and only word that is God. 
everywhere you look, you see his achievements. He imagined it all from the tiniest insect to the largest elephant. He spoke it all into existence from the most bizarre creatures of the deepest ocean trenches to the most elegant dolphins leaping on the surface. He's the one behind the darkest of thunderstorms and the one behind the brightest of blue skies and that sun that just keeps burning and burning and burning. And all of it, all of it is his design. All of it is put there by his power. And it's not like he even had anything to work with like we do at our most creative. All his materials had to be made, not from scratch, but, but from nothing. Apart from him, John says, nothing was made that was made. Now, if, if you're here exploring Christianity this morning, what you need to know about Jesus is that he is our explanation for why the world exists. I wonder, how do you explain it all? I'm talking about where it all came from. I'm actually not talking right now about the process of development by which it got here or the way that things change over time as you can observe through experiments and try to reproduce in a lab. I'm not talking about that. There's a lot we can know about how the world works just from paying close attention to it and a lot of good that can be done from understanding more and more about it. I'm all for careful scientific study. I'm asking a question about something science can't get back to. Why is the world here to begin with? Why does anything exist when nothing would come so much more easily? Science can't tell us why the world exists, how it all got here in the first place, what was real before all of this existed. I mean, the most honest answer out there that I've seen is that we just can't know why the world is here or really how it got here but we just know it wasn't on purpose. The only thing we can know is that no one meant for it to be here. It just is. Our answer, the, the Bible's answer to that same question is that there's something rather than nothing because Jesus created everything. Because Jesus wanted everything to exist. Another way to say that is that Jesus loved the world into being. He is the word who was God. And when he says, let there be light, there is light. And that means when we're looking at this world, no matter what direction we're looking, no matter what it is we're looking at, we are looking at the achievement of Jesus. And we live in a world that he didn't just make, but a world that he has entered to make new. The third thing you need to know about Jesus, this Jesus who was God, this Jesus who made everything, is that Jesus will make all things new. That's verses four and five. In him, talking about the word and meaning Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Guys, in these, in these verses right here, we get the main point for which all these other verses have been set up. And this is the main point that's going to set up everything else he wants to tell us about Jesus throughout the rest of John. I want you to think about those first couple of verses we've already looked at as, as John kind of pumping up a pellet gun, an air rifle. Anybody else have one of those as a kid? 
You know, the old Red Rider, you just cock it once, but it had no power. You know, it could barely break through the paper on the target you were shooting at. But then you graduate to a pump-action pellet gun, right? And every pump makes that shot stronger. You get to decide how, how, how fast that, that, that pellet's going to come out, how far that pellet will reach. Think about John in, in verses 1 to 3 is pumping his pellet gun. Boom, boom, boom. Everything he's told us about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus made it all. And now he's aiming it. And he's going to fire. Jesus is the light. The life of men. And the darkness cannot overcome him. He's not just the creator. He is the redeemer. If the backdrop for, Gen- for, for, for verses 1 to 3 was Genesis 1, what happened back in the beginning and, and where it all came from, the backdrop for verses 4 and 5 is the prophet Isaiah. John is basically quoting from him here when he talks about a light that shines in the darkness that can't be overcome. That's Isaiah chapter 9. And in in quoting Isaiah 9, he's also looking ahead to the very end of Isaiah where where we're we're told that God is going to, the same God who made everything to begin with, he's going to make it all new. I create a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah 65 says. And in that new heavens and in that new earth, there will be no more heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. That promise is the backdrop for what John is telling us about Jesus here in verses 4 and 5. John is talking about darkness and a light that can't be covered up. Darkness is a loaded term throughout John's gospel. He uses, it, he uses this imagery again and again. It's a loaded term in a lot of other religions too and, and most fantasy for that matter. You know, we got the dark side of the force you kind of generally know what that means. It's evil and it's power used for bad. You've got the dark Lord Sauron, ruler of Mordor, where the shadows lie with his one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. We get what darkness is used for. And John uses it to describe a kind of realm where God is roped off. This darkness where, where this light is so badly needed it is a way of living in the world as if God is not. A way of living as if his ways, to whatever extent you know them, aren't worth following or trusting. As if his power is not really out there to to judge or to save. As if you're on your own and, and ought to want to be. It's a world in which evil powers do their worst. In which selfishness is the main driver in every human heart. And it's a world in which the awful effects of sin are felt and feared. Darkness, as John uses it, is something people can choose. Jesus himself talks about that later in John's gospel. They loved the darkness instead of the light. And it's a darkness that people suffer in. It's what Isaiah 9 describes as, the, as life under the shadow of death. All the ways large and small that time takes away what we love. Darkness involves sin and darkness involves suffering. Darkness involves all that has marred this good and beautiful world. That's the darkness John is talking about. A catch-all term that, that includes evil and ignorance and rebellion and suffering and oppression and depression and everything that's wrong with the world under sin and Satan and death. And John is saying here, what you need to know about Jesus is that he is a life that has entered our world of death. He just is life. And his life is our light. Not just a flickering candle running short on wax. 
not just an LED flashlight that'll one day run out of batteries. This is a light that nothing, that no amount of darkness can overpower, not now, not ever. And the rest of this book, the rest of John's gospel is written to convince you that he is who John tells you right here he is. And the rest of our series in John chapter one is gonna continue to explain how it is that Jesus as our light can shine in our darkness with a life that death cannot possibly overcome. For now, I wonder, can you start to see why John starts at the beginning and beyond? If he wants us to believe Jesus is a light, the darkness can't overpower, why he'd start with the reality that Jesus is God and that Jesus made everything that is. He starts beyond the beginning because fixing our world is a job so big, only the one who made everything to begin with could possibly handle it. Only the one who at first said, let there be light, could be for us a light that darkness can't overpower. What you need to know about Jesus is that that's exactly who he is. He's the one and the only one that we need. He is God. He made everything and he will make everything new. That's what you need to know about Jesus. Now I wanna leave you today and whet your appetite for the next three weeks with three huge implications for us and for our life together as a church. Three huge implications for us. Here's number one. We should acknowledge that it's dark out there. We should acknowledge that it's dark out there. We live in a culture that's obsessed with personal happiness. I mean, we got the pursuit of happiness right there in our founding documents, don't we? Everybody ought to be able to, to pursue happiness without too many obstacles put in their way. I, for one, am mostly good with that. I think that's a good idea that we not get in each other's way when we don't have to. But our culture is taking this a couple steps further. Now it's common to hear not just that you ought to be able to go after happiness, you know, that you ought to be free to pursue it if you can, if you can get it, but that you, that you ought to be happy that you deserve it as a baseline expectation for your life. And even more troubling than that, in our culture, I, if, if, under the surface, if not actually stated out loud, I, I see a, a, a strong expectation that you really ought to be happy. As in like, what's wrong with you if you're not? I read someone a while back who described happiness in America as a kind of moral duty. And if happiness is a moral duty, then what is grief but a moral failure? If you're not feeling great, you're not to be pitied. You're to be blamed. And don't even think about sharing your problems with others. That'd be an offense against their happiness. That might actually bring them down. And friends, even as Christians, I think we can get caught up in this darkness denial project too. Sometimes with our own special twists. Like, like sometimes we can think that Christians ought to be happy all the time because, you know, Jesus. I mean, we have him. Who are we to complain? How can we keep from singing? Sometimes we can think Christians ought to be happy all the time and that any failure to be happy is a failure to believe in God. As if anything other than a toothy grin 
is a deficit of faith and a dishonor to him. And whatever, to whatever extent you might feel that way, to whatever extent you might feel that way, this time of year can be the most depressing of all. I mean, the promise of hope is all over the place. Isn't it? From pop songs to car commercials, you can see it. And the appearance of hope, at least the appearance of hope, that's everywhere too on all everybody's happy, smiling faces. And you can feel at your worst at the same time you feel completely isolated in it. Like if you dump what you're carrying on somebody else's shoulders, you're going to ruin the Christmas cheer. And if you're feeling that sort of burden, if you're feeling suffocated by your own experience of darkness, but not feeling like you can express that to other people, I hope you can see right here in John's gospel the freedom that Jesus is offering to you. John puts darkness, and I'm talking about the darkness of sin and the darkness of sorrow and everything bad and everything broken in this world, all of it. John puts that darkness right into the introduction to his book. Right at the very beginning, opening paragraph, darkness. In other words, if you want to understand Jesus, you got to get real familiar with darkness because that's what he came to do something about. The darkness is our background for all of our hope. That's why the best of our Christmas carols talk so much about sin and death. Have you noticed that? I mean, I'm all for singing about figgy pudding and red-nosed reindeer as much as the next guy. Alexa is playing that kind of stuff all the time in our house this time of year. And I'm all for it. But sometimes my heart just cries out for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Please, Jesus, victory over the grave. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Please. We're going to sing what we sang this morning. Please, Jesus, from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Don't you long to pray and sing from that place of desperate honesty? Friends, for, for right now, we are the people who still walk in darkness. We experience it all around us and deep inside of us. And if any of this is resonating with you, if what I'm describing feels to you real and, and relates to your experience, then, then let me encourage you right now to make this the day you bring somebody else in on what you're facing. Don't care about whether or not you become their buzzkill in their Christmas happiness. You are not going to be too much to handle. Christians aren't surprised by how hard that life can be. Christians are Christians because they know that and don't have anywhere else to turn but Jesus. Which brings me to implication number two. The first is that we should, be, we, we, we should acknowledge it's dark out there. Let's not pretend. Let's just own up to it and look to Jesus through it. Here's number two, though. We should accept that we can't overcome the darkness. We, me and you, we can't overcome the darkness. It's too much for us. None of us, none of us is the light the world's been waiting for. Sorry to break it to you. It isn't you. Uh, sometimes, I mean, our hearts can be so in the right place on this, but sometimes our instinct when we're honest about darkness, you know, when we're, when we're facing up to what's wrong, not trying to hide from it, our instinct is to try to do something about it. And that can be a wonderful instinct, actually. 
God has given you wonderful capacities and called you to use them to honor him and to love your neighbors as yourself. So by all means, if you can do something, do it, go for it. But we have to be careful that we don't start acting like we have it in ourselves to be a light that darkness can't overcome. For our sake and for our world's sake, uh, for the sake of God's glory, we need to know that none of us is that light the world's been waiting for. It is just broken far beyond what any of us will be able to fix. I mean, not even Jeff Bezos level money can overcome the darkness. Think about it. Bezos could spend his millions on world hunger and millions of people could live longer and healthier lives. And I hope he will. As a frequent Amazon customer, I hope that he's using the profits that he makes off of my family to, 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 to address world hunger as a problem that he, can, that he can help with. But you know what would happen eventually? All those millions of people who live longer and healthier lives would end up dying of something other than hunger. That Jeff Bezos paid for light is a light that the darkness will definitely overcome eventually. Overcome it eventually. And that's to say nothing of the darkness of sin and selfishness that runs through every one of our human hearts. Bezos can't touch that. No matter how much money he ends up with. No amount of dollars will do much for that problem. And if Bezos can't get it done, what chance do you or I have? I mean, these problems are just too much. This last year, I've been reading a couple of helpful books about, talking about the, prom, the, 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 the common experience of, of overwhelm that, that comes from the fact that we now know more about problems throughout the world than our grandparents could have even imagined, but we're just as limited in our reach as any humans ever have been like from the beginning. That's a recipe for relentless and exhausting sense that you should always be doing more. <laughs> None of us knows exactly how much you should be doing. Like, how much more? I don't know. Just more. Whatever you're doing now, it should be more than what it is now. That's all you need to know. I mean, just headlines from one random day this week. I pulled up my New York Times online page. And just, here's a, a few things just from that one day and its headlines. I saw that the first year of the pandemic, uh, we, we, we saw a startling rise in deaths from substance abuse among older Americans. I didn't realize that. And some of this is just now coming to light as more studies are done. I saw that homelessness is surging in California at an unprecedented rate that nearly 175,000 people right now are living in California without a home. I saw that violent protests are spreading in both Iran and China as people strain under these terrible restrictions that their governments have put on their lives. I read that people in Ukraine, some of them our own brothers and sisters in Christ, are settling in for winter, for, for a Ukrainian winter without power and therefore without heat and with bombs dropping unpredictably in random places, even in their own capital city. These are problems playing out in places I've never been to and maybe never will visit. But now these problems are on my mind because I read my paper that day and I can't do anything about them. I mean, th this past week, even right here at home in our own church community, one of my friends gave birth to a precious little girl who spent her first couple days of life going into and out of surgical, a serious surgical procedure on her heart. And praise God for good outcomes so far, but isn't it heartbreaking that it was needed in the first place? That's the kind of world we live in. Two of our church members have died this year. Several others have, have lost loved ones. None of us here could do anything about that. 
And Christians are Christians because they're convinced that what's wrong with this world can't be fixed from the inside. Can't be fixed from the inside. It'll take more resources than any of us, than all of us can bring to bear. To, to fix this world, it'll take an intervention that's every bit as dramatic and powerful as the creation of the world itself. And that conviction we have as Christians that's drawn us to Jesus in the first place, that comes right here out of John's introduction. The light that shines in the darkness is the word who was God and who made everything that is. Jesus is what you might call the nuclear option. If there were any other way to fix this world, God would have used it. He has given us the only hope there is. So implication number three is we should look to the light together. Not only in this season, but definitely in this season. We should look to the light together. We want to be a people drawn to the only light that the darkness can't overcome. We want to be a people that's just constantly driving one another like a cattle prod to that light every chance we get. We want to be a people that just from the beginning, from the top, we just acknowledge with one another. If you talk to me about Jesus when I'm in pain, I'm not going to accuse you of slapping a Band-Aid over a gaping wound. I'm not going to accuse you of being dismissive to me. I'm going to thank you for giving me the only light that my darkness cannot overcome. Please talk to me about Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose, he's coming back. And I need you to tell me it's all true. Can we just agree that that's our role in each other's lives? We're going to look to the light together. That's not sentimentality, friends. John, John's given us history right here. A real light really was born into the world in a real body as real as mine or yours. That real light really did live perfectly. Always choosing light, never choosing darkness. That real light died a real death and rose in a real body and now reigns forever from a throne that one day we will see with our own eyes. And we need to look to that light together because there's no other light that the darkness can't overcome. Will you help me with that? Will you agree to help one another with that? He is the light of the world the darkness has not and will not overcome him. We can trust him. And that's a whole lot easier to do together. Let's pray that the Lord will help us to play this role in each other's lives. Not just this season, but all the time. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we ask you to help us to trust in him. He is all our hope. We ask that you would help us to see with our own eyes what our faith looks to now. A new heavens and a new earth in which there will no more be sound, heard the sound of weeping. And we pray that until that day, you would hold us fast through the same power that gave us our lives to begin with. We trust ourselves to him. In Jesus' name, amen.